There are many stars in the sky, my son. And many kin to the stars in our world. Fireflies among the reeds and grass. Travelers among the cosmos. Predators that sailors claim come from the ocean deep. But there are some who float among the swamps and marshes as guiding lights or streak the nearby sky like beacons in the night. These are to be seen and met with great trepidation. Guides and beacons of the desperate. Signs of imminent death in the dusk. Be wary of the night and its singular lights with singular purpose. <laughs> I mean not to worry you, son. Enjoy the fireflies. Hey there, creatures, and welcome to Encounter This, a podcast exploration of the creatures from Dungeons and & Dragons and the lore that surrounds them. Well, hello there, creatures, and welcome to an extra special episode of Encounter This. This week we are doing episode 50, 50 episodes, and this week is a very, very interesting one for hopefully both you and me. We are looking at Blood Hags from the Pathfinder 2E Bestiary 3 on page 130, so all of you finders out there, you know where to find it. <laughs> I am your host, James Jumby Kid, and with me, taking us through this extra special episode, is Freeman Loopgaru Eisten. That's me. Welcome to the Arbitrary Milestone episode. Woo! <laughs> Thanks, Matthew. <laughs> Matthew Capitacazzo will be proud. <laughs> um, yeah, blood hags. We're switching it up. And going for something outside of five E, although we will talk some five E. That's what's what we we do. That's what we do here. We talk five E. Uh, but I really wanted to do this one because we were kind of looking forward to, you know, episode fifty. It is it is an accomplishment, right? It's something to be proud of. And um, we uh, and I thought I we had an original plan, but I, I kind of went back on it and and I thought, you know what? Why not? Why not hail back to something? the first suite that we did in Haguary and, uh, and, and just do something a little off the beaten path and talk about how we might feel like it could fit into five E compared to what we researched before. Um, so blood hags and blood hags stood out in particular because of the hags that exist in Pathfinder, uh, that don't exist in five E, uh, these ones in particular do have some cultural lore. Some of the other ones, not so much for Pathfinder. Uh, and I thought, Hey, this fits our, our format, our mode of operations, and we can have a little fun with it. And I think they're, I think they're pretty cool. So I look forward to it. Mm. We'll start with a slight 
slight reminders. We're not going to get too crazy into the other, uh, you know, uh, recapping the old hags or anything. But um, I just want to start with a couple similarities that the general hag lore of Pathfinder has with D and D, like what they share. Um, you have things like. Uh, that hags enter covens of three hags. Uh, they craft hag eyes. Uh, they lurk on the edges of civilization. They appear as wizened old women. And uh, they are hateful and derive joy only from the corruption and destruction of the good and virtuous. Uh, so consistencies across the board there. There are a couple... Yeah, very much so. Yeah, and there are a couple stark differences, though, uh, and some mild, I suppose. But um, in particular, um, the origins of of uh, hags are also lost to time in this case. I, if I recall correctly, for 5e, that's more or less the, the truth as well. But in this particular case, uh, hags for Pathfinder on the, in Galarian are not fae. So that's a pretty stark oh. difference. They are humanoid. Um. Instead, it's believed that they might have possibly arose from Fae and became twisted by their own inner selfishness. So that literally transformed their type, their creature type, if you will, um, in mechanical terms. Um, interesting. Yeah, really interesting. Um, so definitely, I wonder, a cursory thought, if that has, is a decision that's sort of based on mechanical evolution of the game um, and what what will and will not affect them, you know, say via different spells and that sort of thing. But, um, but yeah, I just thought very, very interesting, um, totally different, very, very, very different um, creature type. Uh, they also loathe all humanoid races, which I recall being uh, a similarity, but in this case, they have a very particular hatred for humanity it's themselves. Um, not 100% sure why, but like they just, they hate, Humans they hate them. They hate them, and they will prioritize them very much so. Um, and their children, uh, the, ch- the Heg children, with which they replace, you know, the the children that they snatch, um, are in particular changelings. Uh, one of the p- parts of this that's different is the five E Hags. They basically steal a child and they eat them right and then they birth out a new child and then put it back and and as a fake in this case they don't seem to specify that eating the child has them birth a new one but rather uh it doesn't it's not specific it that could be the possible process but it also could be that they they just simply snatch them and eat them for their own desires and then find changelings and place them into the uh, the civilization. And these changelings, um, through whatever process they put them through, then become then have the potential to become a hag. So there's a, diff- a little bit of variance in there that's a, it's a bit strange and wonky. Yeah. Um, hags are weird in Pathfinder, mm. or witches are, are weird in Pathfinder. So I wonder how... Oh, yeah. How how much of it is related to that? Because witches are a class in Pathfinder, for those of you who don't know, and they are given their powers by some unnamed force or deity. So I wonder if Hag is a corruption of that, and that's where that kind right. of stuff comes from. Well, witches, if I remember correctly, they're, they're like somewhat like the Pathfinder warlock, you know, in, in a way, right? They have a lot of related things, although mechanically 
or you know thematically on the mechanics operate with a very different sort of thing with a few things being similar like yes they have hexes and curses but they you know the whole the, the direction it goes in is very different um but yeah I, but they do have mechanically patrons, right? yeah uh no they're not normally named patrons they're okay. um they're like uh, like uh, yeah okay i guess it's similar to the warlock like the warlock has the great old one mm-hmm. um you know the fey so the, it's it's very similar to that uh except there's an entire nation ruled by witches in galarian irison oh um, i did not know this yeah, so Irison, uh, she has a, it, it's it's like the land of the Baba Yaga, which is governed by uh, a group known as the Winter Witches. Um, ex- I don't think it is currently, though. Things get a little weird here because um, the queen, I believe the current queen of uh, Irison is uh, Anastasia Nikolavinia, um, who is one of the secret daughters of czar alexander oh yeah (laughs) who is raised by the dead from rasputin and then rasputin hid her on galarian is the is the lore that i'm reading right now yeah this is this is the uh, reminds me of the time i did hit uh, our group up with the discord about like how where do you guys like to draw the line of there are real world entering uh the um the fantasy world because because that's i was reading about that because there was a, a right. pathfinder society play uh, module where you go deal with uh anastasia and i was like and it, you literally have like russian troops and like the fur hats and everything in in the module and i was like oh, this is kind of fun thematically it was very baba yaga in the north kind of stuff but i was like it's a bit it is a bit much <laughs> you know uh yeah so but um so yeah just yeah, like, just so like it, just like fire or just like Dungeons and Dragons our real world does also exist in in the Galarian universe as well to some capacity. Yeah, it's just um I guess my point is uh like how far removed from which is our hags in the Pathfinder mm. lore or, and and do we have that information? Yeah, I mean off the top of my head I I could be wrong but I th- I feel like they did introduce a hag patron for warlocks in 5e. Um Whereas uh, the patron themes, so yeah, that, this is the difference. Is in, in Pathfinder Second Edition, at least, you have patron themes. You don't have a, a specific patron, uh, and so you have a more thematic thing, um, such as like uh, you know, patron theme curse or winter or rune or night. Um, so you, I don't really ever know. It's even less specific who your patron is than a warlock in Five E. Um, yeah. But uh, I, I see where you're going with that. I think I think uh, they would be quite different in the end, but with a lot of shared um, shared options. Um, I think a witch and a hag, you know, would have a lot in common, if not, you know, bordering on each other's uh, sort of territory of, of mechanical yeah, and thematic. Like is one an ancestral version of the other? Like, is is that why where hags come from? Are they perverse humanoids from? Right. Used to be witches because yeah. I don't know why, but in my head, I cannot separate the two concepts. Mm-hmm. Sure, uh, yeah. I mean, it's it's a it's a blurred line for sure. I think. Um, but uh, I'll move on with something that I I rather like that that comes from Pathfinder Second Edition. Uh, I believe we touched on it briefly in the past, and uh, how they've been doing a really good job about sort of addressing stereotypes and not trying to like explain them away or something um but rather uh you know 
adjusting the lore and making a point to acknowledge them. And, and, um, uh, anyway, uh, it's hard, hard to explain without, without moving on with this. Um, there's a little excerpt for hags in Pathfinder 2E called the nature of hags. And I'm just going to read it uh, verbatim real quick. It says, there is a belief that hags do not possess a true form of their own. Instead, their physical selves are a manifestation of humanity's fear of aging. A lack of male hags has inter- has eternally puzzled scholars, but some say appearing as hideous elderly women is their way of mocking society's own stereotypes around age and beauty. Uh, so rather than all hags are just ugly old women, they instead have no true form, but instead manifest in this ugly stereotypical fear that humanity has, and it's humanity's fault that they are portrayed this way. Right. Okay. I mean that I I love how easily Pathfinders just shifted this meta to to fit a more inclusive world. Yeah. And I really appreciate how they're doing it. Mm-hmm. Um, as obviously as a white male, I don't get to really comment on how clever this is, but to <laughs> me it's yeah, I find it a, a pretty interesting take on it. Yeah. I agree. It's very much so. Uh, I think, I think it's uh, it doesn't overstep its bounds. It's it's sort of an admission of yeah, this is a, a a longstanding problem, and it's a problem that we've had for a while, and it's you know we should recognize it. And and they've just put that acknowledgement into the lore. Essentially, it's you know in this world, this issue is still there, you know in in its own degree, and this creature bears it. Um, as a, as a, as a sign and a symbol, and and you know makes us even more afraid for the the stereotypes and 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 whatnot that we have. So I, I feel like I feel like it's pretty appropriate. It's, it's a great you know immersive acknowledgement of the issue. Yeah, I I couldn't agree more. Mm. Uh, so give me give me a little bit more on on blood hags specifically because that's that's what we're here to talk about. We've done the overarching you know hags mm. differences our our usual yeah. um our usual content, but like let's let's dig into what a blood hag is in Pathfinder and yeah. and specifically why you chose them. Okay, so a blood hag is also known as a sukuyant. That's the best pronunciation I can give you. It's S O U C O U Y A N T sukuyant. Um, okay. And so blood hags in particular, they infiltrate communities in the guise of a young woman instead, uh, or, uh, sorry, sorry, recant in the guise of a young, innocent humanoid doesn't a- actually specify uh, young woman. However, um, this is very different from the usual mode. Like every other hag we've covered, uh, is the wizened old woman who is, you know, can maybe portray themselves as kindly and are very manipulative. Um, but they, and they do have like, you know, uh, I believe they have, uh, not changing properties, but like can change shape and that sort of thing, uh, or disguise self. Um, but in this very particular case, they go out of their way. It's part of their shtick to, to disguise themselves as, as young and innocent. And it's no mere illusion either. The blood hag actually wears the skin of its previous victim. That's gross. We got yeah. some wild bill shit going on here. Or Buffalo Bill. <laughs> Buffalo I apologize. Bill, yeah. this, this might be your. Oh, we've, it's already got dark earlier uh, from the re, a bit of a recap. But like, here's your here's your content warning. This you know, it's not not a pretty scene. It's not a lot, but it's not pretty. Um, 
so during the day, these blood hags, they disguise, their disguise is near perfect. And especially if the community that they're infiltrating doesn't know who they're impersonating. So they have a previous victim and they've, they've come to a new community or town and uh, they, they basically are unbelievably convincing um, as a new arrival. And however, after sunset, the blood hag sheds her skin and puts it in a safe place and then stalks a night to drink blood for sustenance. So it takes a very quick vampiric turn. And while they do this, yeah. however, they are, they don't, because uh, uh, diving into that uh, or relating to that uh, uh, lore where hags have no true form, when they shed their skin, they actually just turn into a tiny ball of fire, which makes me really wonder how they actually suck blood, uh, <laughs> which is not explained. Um, but they can, I wonder if that's just like a will-o'-wisp that they're turning into. Like the like right, a yeah. ball of fire is just like an exaggeration where mm. they're just a ball of pure energy. Well, point of order, will-o'-wisps do uh, lightning damage. They don't do fire damage. Yeah, that's what I mean. Like yeah. maybe they're just perceived as a b- tiny ball oh, of fire, right, but right. they're actually this just oh, ball yeah. of pure spirit. Right, they could they could very well be. Okay, good point. Yeah, um, but this this ball is so tiny or or and or malleable that it can f- slip through cracks in windows and doors and key- even keyholes. So it's it's very tiny and very easily stalking the night um, without uh, much notice, other than the fact that it is glowing, of course. Um, so of course with this power, they can easily target sleeping victims, uh, before heading back to their shed skin and resuming their daytime persona. Okay. Now blood hags, the blood hag skin is sort of an important, uh, component as well. In fact, it is literally a component in dark rituals invoking demonic powers in the lore and, uh, a hero who knows, or sorry, a hero would, um, usually know to destroy said skin. Although uh, it is known that sort of less scrupulous adventurers, they will actually sell it for a pretty substantial sum, uh, like 80, 80 to 120 gold is what's listed, which is pretty big. You know, and this is mostly, of course, coming from Path of Second Edition, so that's that's big for that economy. Um, yeah, so for some reference, is Pathfinder a copper economy, like 5e is, or is it a silver economy? It is, yeah. It still still has the the, the, the same economy with copper... Uh, copper, silver, gold, platinum. I think they do. I don't think they don't do electrum like Five E does. I don't believe. Uh, yeah, they they wouldn't. But I mean, like, is is most like is is your payment for a day's worth of work? Like, is just food Ooh. stuff cost copper? Like, like that's what I mean yeah. in Five E when I say it's a copper economy. Right. Most stuff is based around a, a a number of copper pieces, whereas like nights rooms yeah. for a night uh, roll into the silver, or even the gold, but but not like. I don't, I don't know off the top of my head, but most like basic gear will cost in the silver. Um, so it leads me to believe that it is a copper economy because you have to sort of save up for those sorts of things. I mean, as, as you right. start a new character, not so much. And you're, and you're adventuring, so you're more likely to find more, of course. But like for your average citizen, I would say it's a copper economy. Yeah, that'd be my guess. Um, so yeah, substantial sum. Uh, of course... In this case, it's possible that you know an adventurer that, that does sell it will find later on that they've actually unleashed a quote terrible scourge upon the world. Yeah. <laughs> so 
looking at a copper economy that's 800 that way in in like our dollars that mm-hmm. would be somewhere between 800 and 1200 dollars for this, this right. skin yeah um which actually seems quite low given our economy here in vancouver and the cost of living and and the amount of danger it would take to acquire one of these <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah that's that's fair but you know, it's not I mean, your average it's, camping. It's hard trip. to com- <laughs> Yeah, it's hard to compare our world to their world right. with, when we have things like insulation and right. you know electricity, whereas they Good have point. things yeah. like hay and not electricity, mm-hmm. fire. I guess. Yeah, yeah, totally fair point. Um, yeah, I, I can see where the inflation you would struggle with. But. Uh, one other thing I will point out. Uh, from the lore, and this is uh, very different, um, and this is actually a general hag lore, uh, sort of almost honorable mention thing, but aside from the hatred of humanity, um, there is another particular creature that they despise, and they're called a skelm. So this is a Pathfinder exclusive creature, as far as I know. A skelm are like... Okay, they are, I thought that was a Pokemon for a yeah. second. <laughs> Not so much. Um Unless you know any Pokemon that are known to be hateful and rage-filled at all times. Uh, well, I'm sure I know there is. I'm just drawing a blank because I'm not as good of a fan feel, as I should be. I feel like I'm going to leave that whole silence in. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's, that's a valid criticism of my knowledge of Pokemon. Uh, Gyarados. There we go. Oh, okay. Oh, good. Good one. That's a good one. <laughs> Um, okay, well, um, you have, uh, so, yeah, so the Skelm, um, surrounding then, there is, there is some evidence, uh, that suggests that they have a metaphysical connection to Hex, uh, whether that be via an unfair, or sorry, whether that's via a curse or a betrayal, which is what the Skelm claim, uh, happened from the Hex to themselves. They very much believe that somewhere in that lost history, they were betrayed or cursed or what have you. So they hate hags. But this is known as a one-sided rivalry because uh, as much as they go out of their way um, and to use this as an excuse to harass and antagonize hags, hags pay them no more attention than any other creature. They they barely know they exist. They don't care at all. Um, and... The key part of me bringing this up is that inversely, Skelm have no female forms. They are male only. Okay. So they've. I don't. I'm actually not sure how far back in the lore for for Pathfinder uh, the Skelm go, but they seem to be a counterbalance to that stereotype, which is you know this sort of extra emphasis on the topic. Um, and the way they, I, what off the top of my head, what I call is they they basically um, reproduce by. Uh, by trans, they transform uh, other creatures that are become overcome and overwhelmed with, with rage, and then in that moment they can take advantage of it somehow and turn them into another skelm. Um, but yeah, they only have male forms, and they are this one-sided rival of hags. So I thought it was kind so of what, is, what does a skelm look like other than m- male-ish? Um, they uh, in this case, there's actually quite a few. Um, Quite a few variations of the Skelm um, uh, that appear e- even in 2E. I think there's like four okay. or five different ones already. 
um, ranging from CR3 to CR10, actually. And oh, wow. as a general look, they, they're humanoid, but they have, like, uh, they have antlers that grow out of their head. Um, so they have this sort of bestial look to them. Oh, okay, yeah, I got a I got a photo one okay, sitting okay. in front of me now. They are, they are weird looking. Yeah, very gaunt look to them. They seem to have like kind of glowing eyes. They sort of look like young and or wizened old uh, wizened men, and and uh, and they, yeah, just like these very obvious like deer like antlers protruding from their head. Yeah, but otherwise very huh. humanoid and human looking. I've never heard of this creature before. Yeah. Weird. Um, I hadn't until I researched this, so I thought it was kind of cool. Um, but uh, let's take it on down to the old cultural lore. Then this is a first for us, uh, although it's connected to some stuff we've covered before in, in historical themes. Um, but uh, this is Caribbean folklore. And, oh, cool! Yeah, and we're talking about sukuyants. That's that's this is this is the creature, uh, and I love that it's like just thrown straight into the actual uh, Pathfinder lore that it's also known as a sukuyant. Um, but yeah, Caribbean folklore. Uh, it of course, like always, goes by a few different names uh, depending on your location. So in Dominica, Saint Lucian, Trinidad, Guadalupe, Haiti, even Louisiana and Grenada. Uh, they are known as a Sukiant or, or, or Sukriant, and they're also known as a Lugaru, um, with a couple different variations okay. of that spelling. In uh, Guiana and Jamaica, they're known as Ol Heeg or Ol Hague, which is pretty appropriate. And nope. uh, in, I don't know how to say this one, Suriname or Suriname, uh, I genuinely have no idea. Uh, they're called an Asima, which seems to be totally left field. <laughs> and, uh, and the Bahamas, they're just called Hague. Um, they weren't, they weren't messing around. <laughs> that's fair. <laughs> uh, uh, okay. Yep. I mean, that's, that's a little weird. Cause mm. I mean, those of you who are, uh, old, old hats at this, uh, cryptozoology game, you would know that <laughs> Lugaru or, uh, more appropriately loop guru in French, which is the, uh, the, the primary language of Haiti and possibly some of these other, uh, countries, maybe St. Luca, mm-hmm. um, it means uh, werewolf. That's the French term for werewolf. Mm-hmm. So that's that's an interesting right. um, interesting correlation there. Yeah, and actually have a, a a slight mention of that later on. Actually, when we talk about the origins of the Sukiyan. Um Oh, that's fantastic. Yeah. So these are, of course, blood sucking hags. You would have guessed it, right? Um, they are shape shifting creatures, uh, usually taking the form of a reclusive woman during the day. And at night, she strips off her skin, puts it in a mortar, specifically, and her true form is a fireball that flies across the night sky in search of victims and entering homes through keyholes and cracks. It's, like, almost bang on so far. Um, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. They, uh, methods for sucking the blood, uh, well, they don't really talk about the method so much, but as, like, the location, so they choose arms, legs, or any uh, other soft parts of the body, and they leave behind blue-black marks. Um, if a Sukuyan draws too much blood, the victim may well die and then become another Sukuyan, or they might simply perish outright and have their skin used to assume their new identity, so they'll drink so much blood that it just absolutely obliterates them, and then they, they peel their skin off. Um, 
And uh, so, like, what a terrifying concept, you know, in the real world to, to believe in. Yeah, that's um, pretty gnarly. <laughs> it's like, not often it's so lined up with the actual lore, especially when that lore is so dark. Um, but uh, there are, there were, of course, methods to expose and destroy these creatures. Um, exposing them involved uh, uh, forcing it to perform a Herculean task. That was how it was put on the wiki page. And you essentially heap rice around a house or a village. And the Sukiyon is somehow compelled and obligated to gather every grain of rice one by one before dawn. And with enough rice, you, of course, would catch her in the act. And to destroy one of these creatures, you have to put coarse salt into the skin that she has shed in her mortar. And this will cause the Sukiyon un- to be unable to put the skin back on and thus perish. Oh, oh okay. That's weird. I, I've heard this grain of rice thing before. Oh, and I don't know if it was for the Sukiyon. Yeah. Um, I think that might be from Japanese folklore. Oh, yeah? Okay. Yeah. Yeah, or, I, mean, or maybe I genuinely Indian. don't know. Um, well, uh, yeah, I, I don't remember either. I, it was definitely on a Creature of the Week on the Myth and Legends podcast by Jason Weiser. Okay. Um, but, yeah, okay, interesting. And the salt in the skin, that's, um, that would hurt, I guess. Yeah, but it, see, it doesn't specify that, uh, you know, if they try to put it back on, it hurts them. It doesn't specify that they will perish because dawn breaks or the day becomes isn't special they'll perish just because of a certain length of time without their skin of course of course there's a specification it's cultural lore um which and i will mention ahead uh, now from my notes that uh, this is of um oral tradition so uh oral tradition is super rich and really really cool but it's like a game of telephone it changes and mutates and constantly it keeps its core but it constantly evolves, right? So it's never really yeah. um, uh, sp- overly specific, especially in this case, right? Um, so uh, IRL, partic- uh, practitioners of black magic, um, <laughs> uh, they believe that the, the blood, uh, uh, or they believe that Sukuyant's Sorry, hold on. actually, I screwed that up. I, I read ahead too far. And so, Sukiyans are considered to be practitioners of black magic. And they it is believed that they actually trade the blood of their victims to a demon named Basil, who resides in a silk cotton tree. Uh, essentially, in particular, in Trinidad and Tobago, the castle of the devil is believed to reside inside a huge silk cotton tree. Uh, that's deep inside the forest. And the demon of death, uh, Basil, was once tricked into entering the tree uh, by a carpenter. Uh, and um, that's actually a whole story of its own. Uh, we're not going to boot it on air here, but I, I, I want to put it in the show notes and or our reading list. Because it's it's a pretty neat little folktale. Um, and uh, it's, it's a, suffice it to say, the carpenter does something kind of weird and it tricks the demon to go inside this tree traps them and then later on gets drunk uh and boasts about it 
like seven years later or something. And then everyone says, no, okay. you got to show us. And then he shows them and lets the demon out and they all die. Uh, <laughs> On a drunk dare or something, <laughs> it's really funny. Uh, yes, but it's a clever. It's the a really hubris of man, <laughs> right? Um, uh, but it, it's a it's a lovely folk tale. I have a link for it somewhere. Um, okay, great. Yeah, I'd love to read that. Yeah. Uh, outside of that, uh, you know, real life supposed practitioners of black magic uh, believe that the skin of these sukuyants are um, is quite valuable in in the usage of their magic. As a component. So, again, like uh, another very straight comparison to the lore. Um, as far as the origins go of this this creature, uh, we are looking at a class of evil Caribbean spirits and demons known as jumbies. A couple other variations on that word as well, but essentially, uh, this, yeah, these class of spirits and demons. And... Uh, it's believed that Sukiyans were basically brought to the Caribbean via European vampire-like myths that in, that okay. also intermingled with various beliefs of, of African slaves. Uh, in the French West Indies, in particular, Guadalupe and, and again, can't say it, don't know how to say it, Sur- Suriname. I think um, it's Suriname. Suriname, okay. Uh, yeah, I found a spelling that doesn't have the E on the end, so. Okay, sure. Um, so there's a... Uh, it's known as a, or it could be known as a Sukunyan. Uh, a couple of variations on that spelling as well, um, but it's essentially the same thing. But it could be anyone, not just an elderly woman. And this is actually ends up being a, an example and a piece of evidence for the evolution of, through the oral tradition. Um, right. Some people stick to some of the past stuff, and they actually insist that they are only women uh, because the breasts are used to hide the creature's wings. It's the only mention I even heard of wings for this creature, so you know doesn't seem to fit in quite quite right. Um, and um, since this creature that seems is like, like a like a little Christian addition, right yeah, there. <laughs> doesn't it? it Maybe actually, don't oh look at God, her boobs. It actually does. <laughs> well, if it's gonna be a spirit, it's gotta have wings, and only women are evil. Now well, we know that because we're Christian. Um, <laughs> Colonialism. Yeah, and just colonialism. Like, I'm telling you. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, bad news. Uh, but I mean, since but since this, like, uh, based on what evidence we do have for its origins and these sort of intermingling of myths, it's yet another you know inst- uh, piece of evidence that it, it very much started as oral tradition. It's always been oral tradition for this particular creature. And um, well, be- unfortunately for us, most of the groups you've mentioned previously, thanks colonialism, were not allowed to learn how to read or write. Right? Yeah. We just rename this episode. Thanks colonialism slash s. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, yeah, I guess so. Uh, but as you said, and that's my final note in the origins is that that, that reference to the Lugaru um, very much is derived from the French Lugaru, straight up, and. Um, very likely the reason that variation on the, on the creature's name exists is, is simply because of those transference of, uh, or the transference of, of, of those various European myths, uh, intermingling. So, yeah, there's also, um, I'm prepared to be corrected if anybody can cite an actual source on this, but I believe specifically the Lugaru, um, literally tears its skin off to reveal the werewolf inside as opposed oh. to it actually being like a like a shift i think it just rips its skin off and then becomes the werewolf oh cool all right that's that's neat that's really neat i did not know that 
there are some, um, at least in some of the lore that I'm aware of, uh, there there are some pretty specific differences between the Lugaru mm-hmm. and a werewolf. Yeah, it's funny. You don't often, you don't often, or we don't often, uh, at the very least, see part of the cultural lore and how it's it's built of a couple of sources to create something new but relative. Um, more often than that, we see it in, in the way that like we have this particular cultural lore and then we see how D&D or Wizards has, has changed it. But here we're actually literally looking at traditional lore being changed into new traditional lore and then being thrown in to a, a fictional world. Um, yeah. And we don't get quite the, quite the uh, direct image as this very often. And I think that's pretty neat. Yeah, I like it. Um, it this is uh, it, it's a very unique episode that we're going to be producing, but I'm I'm learning as much as I I ever have, and I yeah, it's just it's cool, it's interesting. There's so many similarities to this blood hag to things like black sorcerers, to vampires, to werewolves, to right. hags, to witches. Like there's and, so much, and like almost an accidental to the will o' wisp, like you said, you know. Yeah, really neat. Yeah, I like it. Yeah. So, with that, talking about the differences here, there's not much to say. It's mostly bang on, uh, save for a few additional yeah. features in the IRL lore. So, there's additional things over there that, that you don't see in the in the Pathfinder lore. Um, and but most of most of that is just easily added if you wish to. Um, and it would yeah. Really if you want anything. your Sequoian to have underboob wings, you can. They can have <laughs> underboob wings. <laughs> just. Don't bother because it's literally pointless. Uh, <laughs> feature Can't not needed. That. <laughs> if you want to know about features not needed, go listen to our Water Weirds episode from a couple weeks ago. <laughs> oh. <laughs> Shots fired. That episode will forever stand out to me as the one where we said, "Don't just don't use this." <laughs> yeah. that, was, that was a singular episode. Oh, I think. so funny. Um, <laughs> Uh, but for honorable mentions, I uh, there's not much really. I mean, Sukuyans like make appearances as references in various books and TV shows and films. I think there's a book called Sukuyan that, of course, puts it a little front and more front and center. There are a few Caribbean plays apparently that revolve around these creatures, but otherwise, not a lot of pop culture references that are like well known or anything. Uh, uh, I have one. You've got one. Okay, if- sweet. Yeah. yeah so, uh, well, so the first one is is for the Lugaru, which is where I got most of my lore from, and that's the Dresden Files. Mm-hmm. Um, the Lugaru is a uh, it is a specifically a like super werewolf. Like if okay, if Captain America became a werewolf, would be the Lugaru. Yeah. Um, and it it goes on a goes on a rampage. Um, but the second one is a little bit more obscure. Uh, so in the in the mid aughts, there was a f- an animated film uh, that was a sequel to another animated film. Uh, it's it's the second Hellboy film. It's called Blood and Iron, um, and in that they face a woman uh, named Elizabeth El- Andrushko, who's a vampire in the lore, who bathes in the blood of young women to stay to stay young. Oh. Uh, and, and her bathing in the blood is like this, um, it's, it's like her, her dark ritual to the goddess Hecate. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the character Elizabeth Andrushko is based on Countess Elizabeth Bathois, or Bathory, who's a Hungarian countess, uh, who 
would kill and bathe in the blood of of women uh, between 1590 and 1610. And it cited that she was on trial for 650 different women, uh, girls and women, (laughs) who she murdered and bathed in the blood of. And to this day, it is the highest number of... uh, of victims that somebody's been accused of torturing and killing. Oh my God. Um, so when you say like blood hag, like black magic, <laughs> uh, this is the woman who stands out in my mind. Wow. That is intense. Yeah. That is genuinely intense. Um, I, f- I feel like I've heard of both of those examples you gave, one, you know, the, the Hellboy one and, and the reference, but, um, but not in that sort of detail. <laughs> That's really, really cool. In fact, that might be your adventure hook for this episode. Uh, where you have a blood hag that that's doing that is like honestly just watch as. Blood and Iron. Like is it, it is that the, the, is the, that the story live that you, with the Ron Perlman? No, well uh, it is Ron Perlman and Selma Blair and Doug Jones and John Hurt, but it's actually an animated. So they did the two live action, and then they did two animated after that. Uh, gotcha. The first one is Sword of Storms, which is a uh, which I'll be referencing in our next episode, <laughs> and then uh, the second one, which is Blood and Iron. Uh, okay. If you want your adventure hook for Blood Hags, just go watch Blood and Iron and just run that as a D and D adventure. Cool, cool. Yeah, I mean, it, it fits in that that whole disguise of of uh, maintaining a uh, of a young innocent humanoid that the Blood Hag does. Um, you could have this real proper myth happening where there's like you know there's this countess in you know the boonies somewhere that is not only do, you know bathing in the blood of of young innocent women. Uh, to stay young, but it's actually working. But it turns out it's yep. actually just this, the power of this blood hag. It's not not the bathing in the blood. That's a that's a cool premise to start with. I like that a lot. Yeah, and that's honestly pretty much the premise of Blood and Iron, except yeah. that it's not. It's the the blood is the sacrifice to the goddess, uh, right? He- Hecate, I think is how it's pronounced. Okay, um, who is is the queen of the witches in this mythology? So mm-hmm. cool. Um, if you haven't, highly recommend. I th- it's on one of the streaming services. I think it might be on Amazon Prime. Um, but I, I bought it years and years ago when it, when it was released on DVD, and it still holds up. It's super good. Yeah. Cool. Really neat. Love it. Um, so with all that said. I will, I will let you continue with your episode. Please. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> How dare you? Intervene. <laughs> Speak your mind. Providing interesting, useful information. You son of a bitch. <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm sure your mother's you lovely. Well. <laughs> Slightly tangential. <laughs> uh, um, uh, my honorable mentions list. Uh, I mean, it's, it's. I think it's probably quite clear at this point. You are much more well versed in pop culture, even if it's if it's more obscure, or more often than not, um, than than myself. Because I, I don't. I don't know anything. <laughs> I don't know anything. <laughs> I play the accordion for fuck's sake. Um, <laughs> Nerd. Uh, <laughs> my honorable mentions are, are just going to actually kind of discuss some of the differences between the very particular uh, Pathfinder and 5e hags. Uh, we're not going to get too into it, but I'm going to go off a list. Uh, there's, a, there's a couple hags that only appear in 1e, uh, and uh, and then some that only appear in 2e, and some that appear in both. Uh, and then, of course, there's the classic five from 5e, and we'll, we'll briefly touch on those. Um, but interject okay. as you feel. Uh, I'm just going to do this uh, to start off. Uh, aside from the original five, uh, the original five, I'm going to go alphabetical order. So first, we have an Ash Hag, who appears in 1e for Pathfinder. Um, 
they basically dwell in places scoured by fire, and they appear as damsels in distress or benevolent old women. They sort of choose between. Um, don't really have anything else on that, but just kind of a new, interesting, um, basic take. There's also a dream thief hag, also only appears in 1E so far. Uh, they are cousins of the night hag, a classic, and uh, dwell specifically in the dimension of dreams. You're not really likely to find them on the material plane. There is a moon hag, which appears in 2E only. Uh, they are soothsayers that dwell where, uh, that dwell in places where souls receive final judgment. They are said to, it is believed they possess knowledge and power over portals between the lands of the living and the lands of the dead, uh, which um, in and of itself could be a relatively interesting um, adventure. Oh, I love that. Who yeah. is the who is the the moon faced god? Is it uh, is it oh, Gozera? No, no, no. It's um, Grotus. Grotus. Yeah, <laughs> love that. Yeah. Uh, so really in the cool. Pathfinder lore, Grotus is like this skull-shaped moon who just hangs out over uh, Phrasma's Valley of the Dead, which is very similar to like Anubis's Judging Realm, or uh, which which um, Christian uh, Limbo is kind of based upon. It's it's the mm-hmm. waiting room to get into the afterlife. Right. Yeah. So like like Grotus is just this this fucking evil moon that just hangs out over yeah. and above it. So I love the idea that these moon hags are just yeah. like Grotus worshippers. Just like, zip back and forth. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Because it's like it's Phrasma who does the judgment. Right. She's a neutral god who yeah. does the judgment. She does it in the boneyard, which is on yeah. Grotus, I believe. The the moon uh, or connected to I it think, very directly. Anyway. I think Grotus is in the sky, but I'm I'm prepared to be corrected. Okay. Uh, I'm also prepared to be corrected. Colin, uh, you, you guys know this is a Colin show, right? Let's just, let's just call in <laughs> and correct us. Um, <laughs> wouldn't it be fun to do a Colin show? <laughs> what a nightmare. Well, there was there was um, <laughs> there was that adventure we did with Tommy back in the day mm. where we started uh, Return of the Rune Lords, or right I think it was or yeah the, Rise, whatever the last oh, uh, one was. Oh yeah, free calls. Yeah, in the boneyard, and I think Grotus was in the sky above us. It's the Whispering Tyrant one. Yeah, that's it, the Whispering Tyrant. I don't, know, I don't remember the name of it, but that it was surrounding the Whispering Tyrant. Um, yeah. Uh, anyway, yeah. Anyway, yeah. I do. Do you remember that? Um, so really, really cool hag. I, actually, if you want to take a look, I, I, it's not quite in the same order I'm doing this, but I, I put all the pictures in. The Discord there for you to look at, and you can see the moon hag. They actually look like borderline like an undead creature. Yeah, they look incredible. Mm-hmm. Really, really neat. All of, all of the images you you've shown me look look absolutely. Yeah, incredible. the artwork in, in Pathfinder Second Edition is on point. It's really, really good. Um, and, and these are very creepy looking creatures. Um, and I, yeah. there's a lot more here than usual, but I, I'm actually going to do my utmost to to post them all on the Instagram for this episode in particular. So yeah, please, yeah. yeah they're oh, fuck that blood hag even looks so good. Yeah, right. She's just she's looks young. I mean, doesn't look so innocent in the picture. So, but like you could see how no. she might pass when she tries. Uh, you know, just lovely dress, just like young, long hair, thin, but just. Also, in this particular artwork, terrifying, absolutely terrifying, menacing as all hell. Um, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So, uh, moving on to the, or going back to the list here, we also have a, what's called a mute hag, M U T E, 
Uh, they only appear in one E so far, but they're basically hags that are born from non-hag parents, which is really strange. And oh, so they've got the X gene. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> if X- I think there should be an accent over that E, so it's <laughs> mutie hag. Get out. <laughs> Well, I mean, if, by X-Gene, you mean uh, they were cursed uh, or traveled through a blighted land while pregnant, uh, <laughs> then yes. That is exactly uh, what I mean. Don't yeah. sue us, dude. <laughs> uh, now, this, this is a strange line I, I saw, but it says they, they are always born with a single white eye. I don't know if that means they only have one eye and it's white or if just one of the two is white. Um, <laughs> genuinely, very, no idea. Very ambiguous sentence, <laughs> yeah. yeah. Uh, but uh, they are actually technically no more evil than their own ancestry. However, they do, because there is a curse over them, they have a lingering anger and resentment. And as far as I know, hags are actually able to turn them into other hags if they find them. So, Oh, Okay. No. Can you can you explain the 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 mute part of this? Is it I, is like is it because their powers are are muted or that that because- was that was my instinct. Uh, I don't have an explanation for it, but I would assume that's the case. It's like they they aren't true hags, uh, but rather you know have this sort of tendency towards what hags are and have this uh, this this innate connection to be able to be turned into them. So they they are a hag that is from birth muted until awakened or made to be their full presence or what have you put put at full okay. volume turned up to 11 <laughs> right but they themselves aren't mute like they're not no there was yeah no, i don't think it's i think it's very very metaphorical and very much not literal in that okay yeah. um uh, we also have a pit hag from one e uh they carry very big pitchforks and they search in the deepest pits of hell for souls to torment. So they're they're hell hags. Um, that's literally all I have on them. Yeah, uh, they. I, I do remember them being specifically saying that they they were more inclined for melee, uh, not unlike the Anis hag. Um, so one of those sort of off the beaten path attempt, uh, approaches. Um, right. And then you have a storm hag. This one actually appears in both one e and two e. Um, and I love the artwork for this one. Um, Honestly, this is probably my favorite art. It's, it's so super good. cool. It creepy old woman like wearing a fur and just holding lightning between her two hands, and it's causing like her fur and her hair to like spark up with a uh, static electricity, and she looks terrifying. <laughs> uh, and their shtick is that they they basically really really hate anyone who shelters in warm dry places during storms and rain. Uh, so the very weather themed and dependent for some reason. <laughs> but, Sounds um, like we get along. Yeah, uh, just makes me. It kind of makes me think. I haven't read too much in, further into them. But it kind of makes me think. Why aren't they just sort of baked into the sea hag? Um, <laughs> sounds like almost the same thing here, uh, or rather, it could just work at the same time. Well, spoilers. Is there a sea hag in one e? There is. Yeah, all all five. All five of the five e hags are in here. Um, oh no shit yeah so the differences here and uh, we'll go in alphabetic order uh the anise hag which you may oh note, i can see why sorry <laughs> i just i found a picture of the sea hag i know why it's not baked in okay <laughs> <laughs> uh, the anise hag you you will agree looks extremely different 
uh, from the 5e1, where the 5e1 is a is a huge hulking creature. This creature just still looks, you know, average building size for a hag. They are still yeah, very much... Yeah, the difference in these creatures' sizes is the difference between Bill Bixby and Lou Ferrigno in the 60s <laughs> Hulk. Like, one of them does not look like it can take a fight or take a punch at all, and right. the other one looks like it'll break you. Straight up, yeah, 100%. However, they are still physical combat you know, melee forward creatures. Uh, and they are still, they're also brutal torturers. They love the flesh of the young and the innocent. That was all very much an Annis thing. Uh, in this case, they collect grisly trophies from their kills and send, uh, and actually send these trophies to the victim's loved ones to sow discord by implicating it, that it was a family related murder. Like someone in the family did it. Like they uh-huh. go the extra mile. <laughs> With their killing of of young innocents, they interesting, yeah, oh, so dark. Um, and one of the key differences for these ones is that uh, instead of having the the iron nails and the iron teeth, their flesh is iron like. So like their whole person has an iron like oh. presence to it. Yeah, really crazy. I wish I was part of me that wishes we were just doing a sweet out of this at this point. <laughs> Because, like, I would love to know more about that. Uh, like, heat metal? <laughs> Hello? <laughs> the whole body. Ridiculous. Um, well, iron-like doesn't mean it's made of iron. True, true. Uh, GM description. <laughs> I also legitimately don't know if heat metal exists in Pathfinder. I don't think it does, actually. However, the one thing the one thing 5e is really, really outshines Pathfinder on. Like, truly and wholly. Heat metal is amazing. <laughs> I love that spell. <laughs> I hate it so much. As as a GM, yeah. I hate it oh, so it's much. It's so OP. Um, uh, no, okay, it is a spell in 2E. Is it? My bad. Yeah, evocation. Oh, no kidding. All right. Terrible to know. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> mm-hmm. And don't ever let me play a wizard. <laughs> Damn it. Um, All right. So green, green, green hags are next on your list. Yeah, and they are basically the exact same as Five E. Just they're like just right. the classic kind of vanilla hag. Um, night hags Your are Halloween witch. Yeah, right. Uh, night hags are uh, quite similar. Instead of uh, they collect souls in gems or jars rather than the soul bag. You might remember from the, uh, the night hag. Um, oh yeah, they also have heart stones. Uh, that they create, and otherwise they're mostly the same as Five E. They they get these souls. They I think if I remember correctly, they try to sell them off or trade them or what have you. Um, but yeah, they're they're basically the same. They kind of jump back and forth between the ethereal plane and the, you know what have you, and attack you while you're sleeping and all that stuff. Right, your basic Alphaba from Wizard of Oz. Right, yeah. <laughs> And then sea hags, uh, mostly the same as 5e as well. Um, in this case, there was no particular mention of uh, their hatred for beauty or mirrors and that sort of thing. Uh, that was a very specific point in 5e. Um, but otherwise, okay. sea hags are quite similar. You, you said you had some thoughts on their, their image. <laughs> yeah, so their their image is, is horrifying. Yeah, like is seriously. Pure nightmare fuel. But I, I think the difference between these and storm hags and Tui, at least, might be sea hags are only aquatic, but that's just based on the image. These do not look like they could do anything on land if they could go on land at all. Even that pose is very swimming. Yeah, it does um, look like so they're I wonder if they can breathe there at yeah. all. Yeah. 
Um, I, I'm going to go ahead and assume they can um, and, and make the assumption that they are not too different in that regard for uh, than, than 5e. I, I see what you're saying, though. Um, I think their hands look more aquatic, like strictly aquatic, than their feet do. So it makes me feel like they're, they could still very much. I don't know, man. Those are some pretty webbed toes. Sure, but that's you know, webbed toes don't stop you from standing in particular. Well, you know? I guess they don't. Sometimes <laughs> they get in the way. I'm sure, I'm sure they get in the way, but is it fully preventative? I guess that's the question, right? <laughs> no, I stand all the time. <laughs> Uh, listeners, I have two toes on each foot that are completely webbed together. So weird. Uh, they are amphibious, but I don't know what that means in 2e. Mm, yeah, we're not getting too far into those mechanics. Um, yeah, that's fair. And lastly, we have uh, what's called a winter hag, which is essentially the burr hag, um, just with a more obvious name, um, or a less punny name. Um and they they're basically the same, and they they have an ice staff filled with magic and everything, like you know, basic basically the same deal. Yeah. Um. Yeah. So that that's that's lore, cultural lore, differences, rifts, rants, tangents, in a nutshell for the old blood hag and a pathfinder take on hags in general. I I really like the moon hags. Mm. Um. And I like the idea of a mute hag, like uh, like an untapped resource that hasn't been yeah. hasn't been activated yet. Like you've got a like like a Russian sleeper cell, you know. Like you've got to activate this hag with the right code word. Um, <laughs> That's a really cool thought. Cover. Is that in Pathfinder Second Edition, one of the backgrounds uh, there's an uncommon background. It would be called called cursed, and it has a couple of mechanical effects, especially when, you know, building your character. However, from what I recall, you do have to choose, um, or like it's at GM's discretion, you work with your GM to determine the nature of the curse. And I think it would be pretty neat to say that the curse, and you could even keep this from the player to some degree, but the curse is actually that you have latent, you know, Hague-like tendencies um, that could crop up. I was just thinking about how fun it would be to build a cursed witch who is actually a mute hag. <laughs> how cool would that be? <laughs> what yeah. what patron theme would you choose? Cursed, I guess. Right? Um, maybe cursed background, cursed patron theme. Maybe winter, honestly, oh, just yeah. based on like Irison and the history of Galarian. Like Irison is a winter, uh, a hinter country. It's you know, mm. it's like the Baba Yaga's domain. So, right. like, I think I think winter or cursed would work really well for that. Cool, that'd be fun. All right, well, right. Um, that's that. Yeah, I mean, a lot of a lot of darkness, a lot of a lot of brooding. Um. More than our fair share of black magic for every episode, but every now and again, you just need to need to thin that out with a little bit of blackmail. <laughs> Not the action, the, the noun. It's like, ooh, wow, the context of that, the phrasing on that. <laughs> it was, it's getting a bit there, dangerous. There, there's your caveat of the day. Do not, uh, don't blackmail people. Don't enjoy a blackmail. Yes, <laughs> enjoy a good blackmail. <laughs> 
Uh, yes, the delicious... and by that, of course, we mean Strange Fellows Northwest Stout, the dark, smooth, and rich, lovely, lovely beer. Um, I'm drinking one. I, I was drinking a Guinness earlier, but I'm I just cracked one, and I'm I'm really oh, that's funny because I was drinking a Persephone Nitro Dry Irish Stout, so we were drinking relatively similar style stouts. <laughs> Yeah, one of them's good, the other one's made by Persephone. <laughs> well, it's actually not that great in the can. It's actually lovely on tap, or on a nitro tap. But um, Persephone one? Yes, yeah. Uh, I, I, I don't believe you. Oh, no, that actually actually is. I, because I just had one in the can, uh, not, 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 not so much. It's pretty, pretty blah. But I'm just happy that we've both moved on to the Blackmail Stout, not brought to you by uh, Trains Fellows. Uh, encounter this. Thanks for listening. Colin. Yes. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I mean, let's let us dive into this beautiful, beautiful beer. Yeah, As so we, this is our first two stat block on the show. We talk about them. There there are some caveats <laughs> here that we're gonna need to, to address. Yep. Um like so is is there anything you want to explain about the stat block going into this or do you just want to do it as it kind of Yeah comes up? there's there's I mean there's a couple of things we'll touch on quickly as we go through uh when it comes to differences in mechanics here um the one thing to understand the most is that the numbers are completely different um Okay the I would have uh, went with the action economy but I appreciate that caveat Yeah uh that would definitely be one of the things we'll we'll touch on but the, just the numbers alone are not going to make sense or reflect. It's probably, in my opinion, the hardest part to properly convert. Um, They're much, much higher. Much higher uh, by quite a large margin. Um, 5e keeps everything squished, you know. Um, that that, uh, that uh, The way they do the D20 system, the way they do their CRs, everything is much more squished and kept into a, a, a tighter box. Yeah, DC thirty is the highest DC in uh, in five E. Right. Um, I don't actually know what the highest DC in Pathfinder is, but we're we're talking like early forties at, at 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 minimum. Oh, minimum for sure. Uh, I could tell you right now because I have been joining a, a game recently. We're playing at tenth and eleventh level Pathfinder Second Edition, and if we if we get a roll in the high twenties at level ten, uh, it's because we rolled really terrible. Uh, and right. we need, we need like, we're at DC's, you know, a, a solid DC is like at the 32 to 35 mark at level 10. Um, so we've, at that point you've already surpassed, uh, your average DC for, um, uh, for 5e. So that it gives yeah. you a pretty good example of just how, how big the numbers are. And, uh, this will, uh, getting straight into it. Um, I'm not even going to ask you what CR you think this creature is because, Almost zero point of reference for this at this point. I yeah, yeah. I've only run one two e game, so I got no frame of reference. Mm. It's a CR eight creature, um, and to really pound those numbers, you know, home and like drive the drive the point home, um, it's got an HP of one seventy and an AC of twenty six. Wow, CR eight, yeah. Uh, <laughs> so totally different. Um, it is a creature uh, of medium size. It is chaotic evil. Um, it has a number of languages. Abyssal, Aklo, Common, Infernal, and Jotun. I'm not 100% sure Aklo is in 5e or Wizards games. Um, no, it's definitely not. I well, it's not in it's the... 4 or 5e. Jotun is just giant. Just, yeah, essentially. Um, Infernal yeah. and Abyssal are the same. Mm-hmm. 
I can't remember where the origin uh, of Aklo is. It might be of like the shadow plane or something like that, but I can't recall off the top of my head. Um, uh, they do have DR to fire. In this case, with the Pathfinder uh, systems, you uh, have a select Aklo number. is under common, give or take. Oh, is it? Yeah. I mean, according to my wicked quick Googling. Uh, okay. Because under common definitely exists in pathfinder as well so maybe it's a derivative of or or maybe under yeah this says it's like a lovecraftian language okay interesting maybe it's that more of that aberrant language um yeah so mm. it lists aboliths and gibbering mathers yeah, and yeah. in that in that that description you just gave um yeah so it also lists source needed so <laughs> let's take that with a grain of salt <laughs> it does too holy shit <laughs> Oh, we love our sources <laughs> here in Encounter This. Um, so, uh, yeah, so uh, moving on, this creature does have DR. Uh, it is towards fire, um, probably because of its fiery form. Um, DR works differently in, in the Path of the Games where you have a, a sel- selected number. So you don't just get half damage. Rather, you reduce the amount of damage uh, listed. So it's fire 10. So for every 10 fire damage it takes... Take it off the number, essentially, which is also another indicator of just how high the numbers need to be, even to bypass yeah. these sorts of things. Um, it you is need an- to do a minimum of eleven damage to even hit this thing if you're doing yeah. fire damage. <laughs> yeah, seriously. Um, so uh, it's immune to bleed, which I'm actually I'm not sure is in five E. Do they have persistent damage types in five E? I don't think. No, they do. not as far as no. I know. Uh, so, I mean, um, the blood hag is immune to bleed. I think that adds up. I'm <laughs> not going to argue too much. Yeah. Um, inversely to the DR, uh, this thing does have a weakness. So instead of doing that double or 50% more damage, it, it takes uh, 10 more damage if struck with cold iron, which is, uh, I think, mm. does exist in 5e, but, but yeah, it's not very cold common. iron exists. Yeah, not very common don't to use. Don't care for that. <laughs> you don't care for that. Okay, yeah. Why? No, it specifically says in the lore that they've taken away the Fey ancestry, and cold uh, iron is specifically a weakness to Fey, so this is kind of a a leftover, a, a remnant of that, and I don't I don't care for that remnant. If you yeah. can take it away, take it all away. Well, uh, to be fair, uh, because... Uh, I mean, I, I, this is me just spitballing and, and taking a stab. Uh, because the Pathfinder 2nd Edition bases almost everything they do on traits. So everything has a trait or a tag, you might call it as well. Um, mm. But everything has traits. So a Blood Hag has the Chaotic Evil trait because alignment is very physical element. It has the Medium trait because that is its physical size. It has the Humanoid trait because we know it's a Humanoid, not Fae. But it also has the Hag trait. Um and this is the case for in a lot of things. Um, uh, a lot of creatures that you you play, even the ancestries that you you roll up yourself for a new character, um, they have will have multiple traits like this, and they have various effects. So it is arguable that their weakness to cold iron is because they have the hag trait. That's a more mechanical explanation rather than the lore one. So I'm not like totally fighting you on it, but benefit of the doubts, you know. Maybe it's not just a remnant, or maybe maybe that's our indication that it is a remnant, and it's a more legitimate remnant of what they once were, right. what they descend from. Um, ever the apologist, aren't I? <laughs> <laughs> uh, I don't even think that apology works, to be honest, because if I remember what we talked about at the top of the show, yeah. uh, you specifically said they move them out of the Fae. Like, they are not Fae. 
Right. Um, well, the, 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 so the no like one you, knows. You can't the apologize story. for yeah. them. They don't know if they were originally Faye or if they were just created by Faye. Is sort uh, of the thing, okay. right? So, gotcha. So very, very open to interpretation. They even one even makes less sense than the other. So I, I'm really, I'm not going to fight you on it too, really anymore <laughs> at all. Uh, it, it does seem a bit dubious. Uh, yeah, dubious seems like the right word for for that. Um, well, I guess I guess let's let's keep moving. Let's let's keep moving sure. down that stat block. All right. Um, they have dark vision, which works more or less the same as 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 five e. They also have uh, something you don't see in five e, and it's called a sense. They have blood sense. Um, okay. And in particular, they, it's an imprecise sense, but it is uh, to a. A radius of 90 feet, which is uh, pretty crazy. Um, Interesting. Yeah, so the way, just a basic breakdown, because that's the first ability we're going to look at for these creatures, a uh, basic breakdown of how they work. And I kind of like the idea of maybe, uh, you know, it's, it'd be fairly easy to implement this in the to D&D. Um, but you're essentially <laughs> looking at uh, be, uh, a sense that allows you to see or, or, or sense something, how appropriate, uh, that's within a certain... Um, Certain distance based on what sense you have, and so it's essentially being able to to see or spot or at least know something is there. So a dog with its smell, um, usually in Pathfinder, or sorry, usually in D and D, we're looking at someone who just has you know creatures that just have advantage on perception sets uh, based around smell. That's how they do it. Um, to me, that feels a bit lazy. Um, that's how wizards does it, but right? Yeah. yeah, that's what I mean. And and so it's like, how often is the GM just going to bother rolling advantage just to detect? I mean, I've never even considered doing it. So m- maybe I'm the odd man out on that. But like, if I'm, I'm rolling around with a a, a Lucrata, you know, I, I'm trying to assume here that they had that uh, sense. Like, I'm just, I'm just not that interested. In, it's usually the 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 players rolling stealth checks against uh, a passive perception as opposed to the opposite, right? So uh, I just don't see using that advantage to perception checks option very, very much. Um, whereas this is like, it feels a little bit more stagnant. It almost, pl- almost would almost, uh, it almost implies that it is related to passive perception, you know, um, where they will just sense you if you come nearby or within this range uh, and if it's imprecise, they don't know your exact location, but they know you've entered that range. Uh, if it is precise, uh, then they know exactly where you are, which is which is a crazy thing in Pathfinder. Um, but in, a, right. in particular, this case, this creature, um, it, it can sense the presence of blood uh, or a creature with blood, and and it can tell the difference between spilled blood and blood within a living creature, which is pretty gnarly. Yeah. More than a little bit, yeah. Mm. So you can't really fool it, is the idea. You can't fool it into thinking, oh, there's something nearby. Just by like, oh, we're trying to hunt this blood hag. Let's spill blood all over the place and lure it. It will know that, you, that you've done that, or that at least the blood is spilled, and maybe it'll, it'll uh, be uh, suspicious. Right. I like that a lot. Mm. Um, I think that's... Um, I think that's a pretty clever distinction that Paizo has made is how I want to phrase this. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, sure. Yeah. Well, well after after you're done, um Tui's blood hag, we'll we'll have a talk. Okay. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, okay. <laughs> um 
And of course, they had, they covered the borrowed skin as well. Um, so mechanically, while they are wearing the skin, they they are uh, uh, they hide their quote true form, and they are granted the effects of a fourth level misdirection spell. We're not really going to dive into that too much, but I I'm, I would guess off the top of my head, it's very much like a you know. Uh, an upgraded like, higher spell slot, like Disguise Self or some such, right? Yeah, and, I uh, think so, yeah. yeah. So, of course, uh, using herself as the primary target for the spell and then wearing the skin, um, uh, the skin becomes a secondary target over that spell and then spreading, it does specify this. It, d- it didn't in the lore, but it does in the stat block. So it's uh, it's kind of a cool thing that Paizo does sometimes is they 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 kind of omit small things from the lower because they know it's going to be a step up so they don't double up too much, um, and uh, it's a, it's debatably a, a smart way of doing it. But um, it does specify the salt like you, we have in the cultural lore that if of course salt is put inside the skin, um, it prevents the hag from putting it on, forcing her to keep her fiery form until she kills another humanoid and has to spend one hour turning that that humanoid into a new disguise. Um, wow. Yeah. And that, of course, becomes quite important because as, when they assume their fire form, um, it changes their statistics quite a bit, um, which is what we'll get into quite momentarily. Okay, cool. Uh, it's worth noting now to anyone listening who is not familiar with Pathfinder 2nd Edition that the action economy is very different, uh, like you said before. Uh, it is not a standard move bonus free action system. It is a three action point system. Uh, free action is still kind of in there. You can still talk and stuff like that. Um, there are still reactions. Um, but basically you just have things that cost you one, two, and sometimes three actions. Um, so just moving. So uh, your full complement yeah. is one action. Uh, which uh, just attacking uh, with one a single weapon is one action. Most spells are two actions. Um, of course, you have the other other things thrown in there where the occasional spell is one action or what you are doing, spell or melee, is a reaction, so on and so forth. Um, and it's a, it's a pretty neat system. I've, I've certainly fallen in love with it. Um, and uh, yeah, so... Uh, it opens up some weird possibilities. So anyone listening who's curious, yes, you can move three times in one turn. Uh, yes, you can attack three times in one turn, although you do incur uh, penalties uh, negative to your attack yeah. rolls to, to do so. And you can mitigate and reduce those very, 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 uh, through various options. So it's really, really neat. So at level one, you can be doing these things. Um, uh, but that's where the math and the high numbers and everything come into play to, to account for those things. So this creature has a claw attack, a jaws attack, and a firebolt attack. These are just standard attacks. So obviously claws uh, can do slashing damage, jaws doing piercing, firebolt doing fire, and has, of course, is ranged. Um, the thing that stands out tremendously here is that the claw has a grab uh, function to it, which essentially allows you... Um, to freely grab someone, meaning you don't have to roll for it, but it still costs you another action, uh, right. which could get, of course, could always get very dangerous, especially when you're looking at a creature that wants to drain your blood. <laughs> um, so uh, hopefully I've made, I've gone through that quickly and made it relatively clear because um, I don't want to dwell on it too much. So that, we're not, that's not what we're here for. 
Um, no, and anybody's got any questions can always hit us up in the Discord or fire us off an email or, or totally. hit us up on Twitter totally. or what, what have you. We're we're here to answer any questions. We're we both really love the two action economy. Yeah, so. yeah. Uh, we've been playing two e a lot more. Which I'm sure we've mentioned before, and uh, really enjoying the system. So, um, these creatures do have uh, two innate. Uh, occult spells from the occult uh, uh, spell list, which is a specific thing to Pathfinder 2E. Uh, Charm and Sleep. So we're not getting too crazy into the whole creatures got a spell casting list to piss off James. Uh, <laughs> keep it <laughs> relatively simple uh, in this case. And um, they, of course, have uh, Assume Fiery Form. This is a three-action thing. So it takes a, it takes a quite a bit of effort. It's got a whole bunch of traits. Uh, including concentrate, fire, occult, polymorph, and transmutation. Um, first thing to understand about traits like these is that they are usually indicative of what you can't do rather than what you can. Uh, they they are indicative of what this thing is locked into. And if something um, uh, like con- a concentrate trait, like it, it, that, it's not concentration doesn't work the same as in five e. But you know for a fact that if you have something on you that stops you from being able to use things with the concentrate trait, they're not going to be able to assume fiery form. So it's things like that. Um, this uh, creature, of course, when they do this, they remove their borrowed skin and they transform into a brilliant ball of fire. They become amorphous. They gain the fire trait. Uh, they have a fly speed of 60 feet, so that's added to the sabbat. They become immune to fire instead of having that DR. Uh, they emit light as a torch, so they're not going to be able to just hide behind something. And uh, they lose all of their melee strikes. They can no longer drain blood, which we'll get into. However, they can deal fire damage uh, with a basic reflex save, so kind of looking at flaming sphere-esque kind of uh, tactics here. Yeah, it's um, a regular dexterity save for those of you at home. Oh, yes, thank you. Um and uh, for half damage, essentially. the um, yep. uh, But it's against anything that strikes the target, so it strikes the hag, uh, and, or is in an adjacent space. So it's kind of both. Um, if... Uh, sorry, one sec. If the skin is intact, uh, she can return to the, norm, the normal form by spending a single action. So it's three actions to assume this, but they can jump back in the skin for only one, assuming it hasn't been destroyed. And um, it, the uh, Hag actually has an alternate option to assume fire form as a single action through bursting through her skin in a blast of flames, but destroys her skin in the process, doing a huge burst of fire damage again. Um, we're actually looking at the, the original is 3d10. This is a 96 fire damage burst in a 20 foot emanation. So, um, wow. yeah, if they want to be cautious about it. They can take three actions, but if they are ready to tumble or maybe just ready to escape and try and blow the party out of the water to, to do so, they can shed their skin in, in this fire explosion and really rock your world. Pretty, pretty fucking neat. <laughs> She uh, spontaneously combusts for quite a bit of damage. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> big time. Um, and then, of course, that brings us to Drain Blood. Um, necromancy and an occult traits for this. Uh, there are a couple of requirements. Um, the creature needs to be grabbed, paralyzed, restrained, unconscious, or willing, uh, and within the blood hag's reach. And, of course, the blood hag sinks her fangs into the creature to drink its blood. Um, it requires an athletics check, 
against uh, the victim's uh, fortitude DC. So rather than, say, rolling a constitution check, you would have like a 10 plus your constitution modifier, and that would be your DC. And um, if the creature, of course, is grabbed, uh, uh, it's uh, it's... Uh, this all is just going to automate itself. Um, and mm-hmm. uh, that's where the, the claw grab thing comes into play. And by the way, this is a single action thing. So uh, you can claw, grab, drain blood in one turn. And, and hey, still have an action left. No, no, that would be three actions. You have to spend the one for the grab. It's a, You don't have to roll a check. That's the freebie is no uh, roll of check. Okay. You do have to spend the action. I learned that when I killed Duncan. I had to double check. I did it right. <laughs> Gotcha. <laughs> um, and so if this uh, is successful, the victim becomes drained one, which will reduce its stats, and the hag regains 15 hit points. Uh, any excess is uh, converted to temporary hit points and lasting for an hour. And uh, drinking the blood from a creature that's already drained uh, doesn't restore your hit points um, or it doesn't restore hit points to the, to the hag, but increases the victim's drained value by one. So the, the way Pathfinder Secretary works, it starts to increase uh, the penalty your, your stats are taking, depending on the condition you have. And um, uh, if you reach drained five, so if this happens to you five times, essentially, or you know multiple sources of drained stack, uh, you die. You are permanently killed. Um, That's interesting. Five, eh? Yeah, five for the system. Five is a bit of a high number for that, isn't it? Um, yeah. Usually, it's like around four or something. So, um, so yeah, it's not a, certainly not a gimme, but it just goes to show you that if they just have a single, you know, creature, they can they can drain their blood and kill them pretty quick, uh, even if it is yeah. five. Um, uh, to to uh, get rid of this drain condition, it, it basically decreases by one per week. Is standardly, but a blood transfusion, which requires a medicine check and sufficient blood uh, and a blood donor, of course, um, you can reduce that by uh, a one every ten minutes if you actively do it. Oh, okay. Like if if some you're actively giving somebody a transfusion, right? Yeah, <laughs> it, make, it makes me wonder. Uh, it's kind of interesting. Like, oh, blood transfusion. Like that's that's like. It sort of assumes that that people know about that in the Galarian world. It's all, almost a rule you could be like, "No, nah, I'm straight up not going to use it because, I mean, I, unless someone's a proper medic in the party, how the hell would you know about that? And then, like, where's the line on blood types? <laughs> you know, I'm not specifying anything about that. Can a can a a halfling give something to a half orc? Um, gnarly, gnarly thing to think about. Yeah, that's. Um yeah, and I, I would assume it would need uh, require healer's tools as well. So, um, right, yeah. Or it's going to file that away from my heel bot. <laughs> I, f- I fucking set up a. That makes it makes you wish they had some more Starfinder rules. And there was like, you need a proper medical lab to do this. Otherwise, you can't. No matter how good you are at medicine. <laughs> yeah, that's fair. Because I mean, my fifth level. Uh, he's not even fifth level. He's third level. My third level cleric is real good at medicine. Yeah, right. Yeah, like, like he's he way do? better than my than my doctor in Starfinder. <laughs> to do find some bamboo stalks that are like hollowed out and just transfer the blood via those. Like, what are you gonna do in the wild? It's, uh, yeah, I, you don't have I, rubber I don't know, tubing man. on you, do you? <laughs> I don't even think rubber exists in Pathfinder. Yeah, I mean, uh, leather tubing. <laughs> oh, it just seems so weird and wrong. <laughs> 
Yeah, just use some pig intestines. Call it a day. I mean, yeah, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> just make him drink it. Here, drink oh. this. Oh, no. Does it work that way? I don't think that works that way. No. <laughs> it super does not work that way. Puts a whole, uh, puts a whole new meaning on pissing blood. Uh, I mean, it looks it looks like a good stat block. Yeah. Um, I don't I don't want to step on your toes too much, but it it honestly looks like one I've seen uh, before. Uh, so I'm not you. a big you? fan. How dare you approach my toes that way? <laughs> yeah. Uh, so I'm normally not a big fan of third party content. Mm-hmm. Uh, the exception being the monster manuals that Cobalt Press has released, uh, Tomb of Beast 1 and 2, and the Creature Codex. Uh, we've given some love to Kaywood Publishing. <laughs> yeah, we, yes, okay, yes. that's true, yeah. Um, so between Kaywood and Cobalt, and we've given some love to Frog God Games and stuff like yeah, that, too. And, like, there's yeah. some really good stuff out there, but normally I tend to rely on uh, 5e content, like official Wizards content. Yeah. Uh, but I have kickstarted every uh, all, all three of the Cobalt Press monster manuals at this oh, time, yeah. Sick. and uh, I I had to look it up before we actually sat down. But do you know when the Tomb of Beasts was released? I have no idea. Twenty sixteen. Oh, do wow. you know when the Pathfinder Two E Bestiary One was released? Uh, as of this recording, I believe it was last month or the month before. <laughs> Uh, yeah, so Best Year 2 is 2020, Best Year 1 was 2019. I couldn't uh, pin down which one Blood Hags were in. Oh, uh, um, yeah, Blood Hags and Best Year 3. It's the most recent one. Oh, okay, Best Year 3 was 2021. Um, so we're, we're looking at a uh, five-year difference between the original Tomo Beasts and Best Year 3 when Blood Hags came out. So... I'm just going to give you a couple of cliff notes from the stat block here. Cool. Uh, Blood Hag, third party, in front of me. dangerous waters. What have we got? Uh, you know, it's, it, it is uh, AC 16, uh, 178 hit points, uh, CR 11 for, and again, the, uh, the Tomb of Beast and the Cobalt Press stuff um, is all 5E supplements. Mm-hmm. So this is essentially yeah. a 5E uh, equivalent stat block. Pre-built, converted, wicked. <laughs> Although, yep. g- good reference point um, for HP, this thing is, uh, this hag is 11 CRs, CRs higher. Is that, can I use it that way? Uh, <laughs> uh, sorry, it is three higher in the CR from uh, the, the 2E1 here. It's got almost the equivalent yep. hit points, but has 10 less AC at 16. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, it, so it speaks pretty much the same languages, common, giant, infernal. Sylvan and Trollkin, which is a Cobalt Press uh, specific language. Oh yeah. Um, I'm gonna brush past a lot of this. If if you're interested, go buy the book. It's really solid. It's worth every penny. Uh, but into the abilities, the first ability is Blood Sense. Yeah. So a yeah. Blood Hag automatically senses the blood of a living creature within 90 feet and can pinpoint their location within 30 feet, ah. which is pretty much exactly what you just described yeah. for Blood Sense. Except they're they're combining what I described as you know these uh, the two e ones they have imprecise sense to ninety feet. Yeah, I described precise sense, but they don't have them. So this is giving a uh, giving a precise sense within a shorter range. Actually, really within like that. Feet. I think it's really cool. Yeah. yeah. Uh, they have a couple of spells that are pretty similar: disguise self, minor illusion, um, tongues, like that kind of stuff. Uh, again, I'm going to brush through a lot of this because this is a pretty big stat block. Sure. 
Um, it does have the same claws, but it doesn't do the grab. It does a, it's a plus nine to hit with 46 plus five slashing damage. So not far off mm-hmm. um, mathematically from what we have here. Uh, the 2d8 plus 7. Yeah. I see they do have multi-attack as well. So sort of, yeah. uh, you know, combi- uh, sort of accounting for the, the three action point system where they can attack multiple times. So that's that's built in there as well. Yeah, so this is two claws and one blood-drinking hair because it's not the hag that drinks blood. It's her hair that's literally made of worms that drinks the blood. Whoa, that's weird. <laughs> yeah, that's so it is a weird. wild image. Yeah. Um, but it's that blood-drinking hair that can then grapple with an escape DC of 15. Uh, that's a plus 9 to hit, 3d8 plus 5 piercing damage, and a medium or smaller is grappled. Mm. grappled creature takes 2d8 plus 3 necrotic damage at the start of their next turn and the hag heals themselves half as many hit points okay so the the hag can also only grapple up to two creatures at a time so Mm. pretty similar to what we're seeing for the 2e stuff yeah yeah Um, similar thematically for sure I'm, i'm actually so glad this exists um and it's funny. It's so funny that you pointed out the the dates and where this one was created, and then the one the two E was created. And it just it it just goes to show you. And I I did say to you off mic that was like I I did not go full conversion on this stat block because it would take entirely too much work. I don't just don't have the time for that. Um. And so yeah. so I'm so glad this actually exists. And I you're the one who pointed it out to me. Um. And I love it. Uh, because it, it, I would, I, I genuinely, if I were doing that conversion, I probably would have missed the whole, um, you know, they, the, uh, the Blood Hag and 5e would gain half as much as the damage they deal, which is a very 5e thing. Um, yeah. I would not have caught Keeps those that numbers low. Yeah. To, to like, for an adjustment, I would not have thought of it. Yeah. They, uh, they have two more attacks here. Uh, one of them is called Face Peel. So a target that it's grappling um, from the blood drinking hair, it's a DC 17 dex save. Otherwise, its face is torn off and it takes 8d6 plus 10 slashing damage and is stunned until the start of the hag's next turn. So if it succeeds, the target takes half as much damage and isn't stunned. However, the hag still rips its face off. Oh my god. Heal, regeneration, or comparable magic restores its stolen features. Other curative magic forms such as just create a mass of scar tissue. So if this blood hag rips your face off and somebody just cure wounds on you or um uh like gives you a a, a, my, a, a healing potion, like mm-hmm. your face just turns into a mat of scars like Deadpool. Oh man. That's so yeah. crazy. So this the the face that is peeled off becomes an animated object under the hag's control and retains the former's owner's memories and personality. Whoa! Uh, the blood hag can also wear that face to gain advantage on charisma, uh, specifically deception checks made to intimidate or to uh, intimidate that face's former owner. So the hag could grapple you, cut your face off, and then use your face to intimidate you. I have my head in my hands right now because I can't believe what you just said to me. <laughs> yeah, Cobalt Press is pretty pretty gnarly. When no it comes wonder, to stuff no like wonder this. that's like the standout for you. Like, yeah, I feel like this is they, uh, this is what don't I pull any punches. What I kind of want from. Should we just switch to third party now <laughs> on the podcast? Because <laughs> that was that's really cool. 
That is a great build that it's just so much more interesting than I was expecting. That is so The wild thing is cool. is it's not done. They still have one more attack. Oh man, what? <laughs> what could they possibly yeah. do? <laughs> it's called Call the it's Blood. Called, it's called Webbed Toes. Eat. <laughs> <laughs> Gross. <laughs> so any creature that the bloodhead can detect via their blood sense within 30 feet. Uh, she can target, and they need to make a DC 16 con save or suffer one of the following effects. Um, a target that saves cannot be affected for 24 hours, yada, yada. So it lists four effects here, so I'd probably just roll a D4. Mm-hmm. First one is called Blood Choke Curse. The target's mouth fills with blood and prevents any speech or spell casting with verbal components for one minute. Oh, brutal. The second one is called Blood Eye. The target's eyes well up with bloody tears and blind for one minute. Wow. The third one is Heart Like Thunder. The target only hears the rushing of blood in their thumping heart. They're deaf for one minute. I love it. I love it so much. Yeah. And the fourth one is Rupturing Arteries. The victim suffers 2d6 slashing damage as its vein and arteries burst open. The target repeats the save at the beginning of each of its turns. It takes 1d6 necrotic damage if the saving throw fails, but the effect ends on a success. And to be clear, it does not say roll a d4. So if you want to target a spellcaster and make sure they cannot fucking cast spells for a minute, you can, you can do that. Yeah. If you want to target an archer and make sure they cannot target you for a minute, you can do that. Crazy. And there's no reason to think that this hag wouldn't be intelligent enough to to specify who or what they're uh, doing to what target right like well it, this this hag specifically has an intelligence of 19 or right. a plus four and a wisdom of 21 or plus five like <laughs> this hag's lowest stat is its dex at a 16 like it does not <laughs> fuck around this is a beast <laughs> yeah. yeah this is the, the the beefiest cr 11 i think i've ever seen crazy absolutely crazy because yeah. cobalt doesn't they don't pull their punches yeah uh Oh, super fun that's so cool uh stat block to make you properly afraid in, in 5e where you're almost impossible to kill <laughs> that's that's gnarly um awesome yeah awesome i'm so, yeah, and, I'm so uh, pumped you knew about that <laughs> yeah so the lore here is that uh blood hags were first created when a red hag mated with a vampire archmage um and oh like they're just known to steal faces and drink hair uh, drink blood from their hair mm. so crazy i think it'd be relatively easy to to dumb this creature down just ever so slightly to make it a little bit more palatable for those who are worried about how, how powerful it could be um so yeah, this is, so this is a really easy. great template if you will for for this creature in 5e um i originally anticipated that it would be a template to like adjust and change and maybe upgrade. But now I'm thinking if you're going to change it, downgrade it a bit just in case. <laughs> but yeah, um, maybe slow your roll a little bit. <laughs> yeah. Um, um, label. I, I'm not, I'm not going to endorse it, but like if you just want a one-off creature, you can normally find the cobalt stuff. Uh, Co- cobalt press pages pretty easily on Google. Hmm. Uh, yeah. But again, all of the books that I bought from them have been so interesting and valuable that I highly encourage you go out and buy them. Yeah, totally do it. Totally do it. Support if they're if they're creating stuff like this, they deserve support. Um, really cool, awesome. Well, I don't have anything else. Do you have anything else? Um, 
Yeah, you know, normally this is where we talk about homebrew and stuff like that. Yeah. And honestly, I got I got nothing. Like, there's nothing that that Cobalt Press one or this two E one leaves me wanting. There's there's right. not a single thing that I think could be done better or more interesting. Yeah, uh, yeah. I mean, it's it's all so intact with the lore, and there, no matter what system you're playing, this is gonna fuck shit up. Like, yeah. This is not. <laughs> yeah, this is not a creature for the faint of heart. Like this is going to kill people in either in either editions. You know what I will say is that uh, I know. Because I've read it the most recently in Pathfinder Second Edition, they have a little excerpt or side note um, that specifies this, and I believe it's sort of touched upon in Five E as well. At the very least, uh, I believe we talked about it in Haguary. Uh, but these are not typically your big bad evil guys; they are along your path. They are um, sort of side antagonists, um, hags in general. That is, and um, yeah, and that's like you know. Uh, a pretty fun thing to play with, especially, you know, with the Haguary segment that we did, you know, how, how they could the multiple hags could be, um, uh, multiple antagonists in the same world and campaign and story. But, um, in particular, this stat block from Tome of Beasts, Cobalt Press, um, actually does spell big, bad, evil guy to me. Um, and it makes me wonder, just reiterate the Avenger hook that we touched on with, with your talk of, of, uh, that Countess and, and, um, uh, Hellboy. I think this right. creature could be really fun as a BBEG, as a big, bad, evil guy, as your main antagonist for, you know, uh, you know, to a, to level 11 or so campaign, uh, maybe a little bit higher if you want to throw some minions in that last fight. Um, but a really cool premise where, you know, and it's not, it's sometimes you really want to scale yourself back and hide who the big, bad, evil guy is at the start, um, in in certain campaigns and some stories do develop well with that, that method you have to sort of learn as you go or discover as you go the clues to who it's going to be. And then you have the big reveal, but sometimes there's something really unnerving about knowing exactly who you need to get to. You know, at the end, and the long build-up to finding the power to do so, and all the all the shit you go through, all the traumas and everything, and you finally get there. And I right. think this, with that premise that you sort of mentioned and I endorsed, and with this stat block, I think it would be really, really cool. It would be so fun and so easy just to know, like, this is... This is who you've got to end. Um, but if you want to go the other way, there is more than enough illusion magic to keep a party of anybody under level three completely unaware of this NPC that you've planted. Mm. So, like, there's there's definitely a room for them to get close to the party, peel off, reveal at the end. Like, if you, if you want that, you know, cloak and daggers, or, or you want that M Night Shyamalan moments? Like, there's there's plenty of opportunity for that here too. I think. Yeah, I really love the idea of a sort of. If anyone, I know you've played uh, at least through the first one, uh, and ho- anyone listening who knows the Dishonored franchise, uh, the video game franchise, and they have comic books. And they actually have their own tabletop RPG now. Um, 
but I love the setting of that game. It's very plague-ridden. It's Victorian, but it's very uh, sort of uh, maritime. Um, and it has, you know, gunpowder, and it has, like, avant-garde uh, scientific technology. Uh, and uh, I love that sort of Victorian borderline steampunk without the steam kind of vibe. And uh, uh, it makes me actually want to say that I remember I remember having some cool ideas with cranium rats, and especially their, their ability to, um, as they grow larger and larger, uh, have a, a greater and stronger intelligence. And I talked about how a, a, a big bad evil guy in a campaign using those could very well be a massive swarm of them that's just become hyper-intelligent. And I almost want to to find a way to like include those t- together with this this blood hag, you know, where you are in said town or or major city, like large metropolis, where it is plague ridden and there's lots of rats and it's very bubonic plague esque. Um, and but you don't realize that a lot of the rats are actually hyper intelligent and you're working your way up and they're just another obstacle in the way to sort of bring down the countess who is searching for non plagued uh, or people who are immune to the plague because you can bathe in their blood and all all this sort of intermingle those elements and I think that would be fucking cool <laughs> I think I love it <laughs> yeah I really dig that I think mm. that's that's a fantastic idea it would be dark it would be dark and gritty not for the faint of heart is how I would run it lots of misery and and just uh, oppression and and just sickness you know it would be it would be a yeah. tough one to stomach literally uh, and it would be interesting to do something like that as like a side quest in like Barovia if you're doing Curse right. Strahd totally. or Ravenloft. Yeah. Like, like one of your players can't make it for a couple of weeks and you do this little like level <laughs> seven, level eight side <laughs> campaign to introduce your backup characters. Like I think Absolutely. I like that a lot. Yeah, hit up Barovia, hit up Curse of Strahd for insp- uh, inspiration on exactly this sort of thing. Um, that would be really, really cool. Um, but what do you guys think? Do you uh, have you guys converted, run, created your own blood hag? If you have, like, we absolutely want to see the stat blocks. You know, you can uh, you can get at us at our Twitter or Facebook uh, at EncounterPod, Instagram at EncounterPod. Uh, if you want to contact us directly for a dollar a month or more on patreon.com you can you can have uh, direct access to us on our discord if you want to talk about conversions or the toma beast aspect of it or even just have a couple of questions about 2e you can find us there almost any time day or night whether or not we're active or we're swarming around just waiting to pounce on new information uh, and if you want to donate more than a dollar to us for five dollars a month, you get a handwritten thank you letter and access to our show notes. You can see how we recorded these things. And for ten dollars a month, you can suggest a creature. Maybe there's another two E creature you want us to cover, like that Moon Hag, or you want us to go in depth on Grotus. That's that's your direct line to control the content that's coming out. We could talk about the Skelm. Um, we could talk about the Skelm, yeah. <laughs> uh, and if you want to go back and see or listen to our Hag Suite. Uh, from January of last year, I think. Uh, you can find all of that information on EncounterThis.ca. And if you want to hit us up uh, via email, we have an email. It's uh, info at EncounterThis.ca. And if you could rate and review on your platform of choice, that helps us out more than you could ever imagine and really helps new eyes find us. But more than anything, as always, thank you so, so much for listening. And we hope you enjoyed this one. Blood for the blood god. (laughs) 
That was a weird sign out. I was gonna, I was gonna say, don't be afraid to tell us. Don't ever do this again. Stick to five E, you dipshits. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you should keep that in the episode for sure. Hundred <laughs> percent.